Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. In this week's episode, we're talking to George Anderson, who's the editor-in-chief for Retail Wire. He is a career-long retail expert. He's seen it from uh, every aspect. And I think you'll find that he's a great person to spend some time with. In fact, um, I have to say I really enjoyed our uh, Easter egg section at the end where we talk about his career. And uh, I think he's actually got some of the best stories around his musical choices of any of our guests over the, the years. But it's probably worth saying why we're talking to George in, in the first place. And, and, and I guess to put it succinctly, uh, he's helping us to understand our customer. Um, I, I have seen over the years lots of different approaches to identifying who one's customer is, but it's certainly one of the critical success factors. If you don't understand your customer, then it's very hard to make all of the design decisions, the trade-offs that you have to make when you're designing a solution. So we're a podcast that often gets into the technology, but we really try and help you, our dear listeners and viewers, to understand um, the customer, whether it's understanding supply chain with Brielle the other day, uh, or with George getting in the shoes of a retailer. So I hope you uh, enjoy this conversation. Retail Wire is a really interesting um, online destination to get to know retail. The articles are pretty short, but they're followed by these brain trust discussions from lots of different perspectives. So I urge you to check that out and I urge you to give what George has to say in this week's episode a good listen. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. So, George, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Um, let's start off. Uh, tell us a bit about Retail Wire and um, what your approach is to, to covering this sector. Sure. So, um, thanks for having me. Um, it's a little unusual for me to be on the other side of the, uh, the interviewing, but, um, yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Now to I'm starting that. to feel pressure. I hadn't thought about that. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, so retail wire, uh, so retail wire was, uh, founded in, uh, February, 2002. So we, um, we are, uh, we're uh, 20 years along here and, uh, 
Um, I guess we'll, we can probably stop calling ourselves a startup uh, any day now. But um, so Retail Wire is really a it's a it's a unique unique hybrid of uh, kind of a traditional news publication and all, also a social platform. I think it's a, it's interesting. We actually launched. Um, Retail Wire two years before Facebook was invented. If only we had been uh, prescient enough to call ourselves social media, we, uh, you know, we, we could have been even further ahead of the game. So, uh, but anyway, so in addition to um, you know to kind of p- picking up stories that we think are important to retail, and and that is our main audience: retail and consumer brand uh, executives um, are the are, are the core of our audience. Um, we, we, we pick up stories that we think are important. We cover all aspects of retail. But we, we also have to find ones that, um, that will stimulate uh, a conversation, a, a productive conversation um, specifically, so that um, our, our audience will, will not just be getting kind of a, a group speak kind of response. You know, we've, we've always known that, 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 that silos are... Uh, uh, killer of innovation and lack of diversity within organizations, particularly as it relates to, to thinking, um, is is stifling. So, um, so when we started Retail Wire, it really was almost with kind of like an open source content approach in that we would find the best ideas wherever we could. We'd mm-hmm. share them. Um, we'd let people debate them. And then we'd let our audience take what they wanted um, uh, from that. And... Uh, um, you know, we've we've grown uh, sure and steadily uh, uh, over the years, and um, um, you know we you know each day is is different. It's kind of like uh, Amazon's day one philosophy. We kind of recreate ourselves on a on a daily basis, which um, uh, keeps us young despite our our, our gray hair, and um, and keeps us really. Um, you know, involved in, in, in trying to kind of see where we can be of most help because we we really view what we do as a service to to our readers now. Or, I mean, you could even call it a friendship. Um, you know, friendship doesn't always mean, you know, um, directing platitudes towards your friends. Right, giving tough news, honestly. Yes. Uh, and, 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 we, and we do both of those things, but we try to do so in a manner that, again, is constructive and that, um, that you know, actual, um, uh, you know, takeaways can result in, um, you know, something, something better down the line. So our audience tends to be technologists who kind of look at retail as being a place where they can sell their uh, technology. And, and that, that's actually how I got into it. I, I, I worked at Qualcomm for a bit and uh, um, part of our job was to get people to buy more of this mobile technology. And I'm, I was like thinking, where, what's the best way of getting technology in people's hands? And it's like everybody shops, you know, almost everybody shops at least. And they yeah. do it a lot. So if you're gonna if you're gonna get technology out there, great market. And then I remember kind of starting to look at it and being like, you know, everyone feels like they're a retail expert because we all shop. But then you start to segment it and you realize how different it is. So 
how different the different segments are, uh, different models, different vendors. You know, there's not just one point of sale vendor. There's a ton for all those different sectors. How how do you define retail? What are the what are the boundaries of retail? It's a business to consumer transaction. You know, that's the that's the simplest answer. Um, it usually derives from a wholesale arrangement where mm-hmm. the, first, the company that's actually selling is not the creator of the product, but they are they're, they're serving as a middleman. Um, you know, we have we've always had, but we have more so in in recent years and growing. We have direct to consumer, um, which is brand selling. To so they're they're uh, they're competitive in in some respects to to retail and and they cover a lot of the uh, uh, the same area but but that's that's the basic distinction and and we you know on retail wire we cover pretty much all of it um, with the exception of automotive we don't we we do very little in uh, in the in the automotive sector because that's just not our expertise and the dealer network is is slightly different than um, than some of the, you know, food, drug, mass, and, yeah. um, you know, specialty uh, outlets. And would you consider like vending machines to be retail? We, we, we do cover, but we actually, um, vending is, is uh, interesting for two things. It's, it's, it's covered as a, as a tool within retail um, because, uh, you know, retailers are going to automation a lot of this is being done in rural areas where, in fact, uh, basically a convenience store is, is set up somewhere in the, in, you know, what we would consider in the middle of nowhere, but the people who live there think, clearly think it's somewhere mm. um, where they're able to, um, to purchase products without actually having staff uh, on hand to, to deal with those uh, transactions. You know, a lot of it, then more of it, and a lot and a lot of it, I guess, is kind of tied to to what you see in Japan, where which it, the the vending um, uh, industry is much more advanced than it is in the U.S., which has basically been chips and 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 soda here. So um, so and it goes back to kind of the automat uh, history that we had here in, in 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 the U.S. So you know you have some brands doing that and some retailers, um, and I think there's. I think there's opportunities um, for that. It's started to be, and it's starting to be uh, uh, developed. Um, I just don't think with with mainline retailers in particular that it's um, it's top of mind because you know the return there is you know is is not on par with you know their other priorities. Makes sense. So. Um... So I was recently uh, at NRF and I was just struck uh, by how COVID impacted that National Retail Federation show in New York. What What are your thoughts on how COVID is changing retail? What are the implications to retailers and to the people that serve retail? Well, this is actually going to be a short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it teaches us two things. Adaptability is the key to survival differentiation is a key to thriving. That's it. That's what it's taught us. Differentiation is the key to thriving. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. So everybody has to, everybody has to adapt and they've been forced to adapt. You know, you look at um, uh, buy online, uh, pick up in store um, or uh, even more so curbside pickup. 
Um, you know, retailers, you know, had one, two, three, five-year plans to kind of get into that slowly. And then COVID happened and it had to, you know, go overnight. I mean, uh, Kohl's is probably a pretty good example. They they were tinkering. I believe that's the word they used on their, their uh, call, but uh, um, they had a handful of stores where they were, you know, basically testing, testing it out. And uh, virtually overnight, you know, you know, within weeks, a month or so, they they had um, uh, curbside pickup at all their locations. Now that wasn't in their plans, um, but it was an absolute necessity because because retailers like Kohl's in the in the U.S. were not deemed essential retailers at that time, and they were forced to close their stores. And, right. Um, and you know, some retailers, um, Best Buy, for example. Uh, Lululemon also did it, um, started doing uh, appointments uh, online or appoint appointments to show up and, and shop so that they could minimize traffic in stores. So, um, so they, you know, I think all, all retailers kind of had to, uh, to make it up as they went. In some cases, they already had plans and some of it was from, uh, some of it was from, from scratch, but, um, you know that we're. It's an inter- interesting thing. We're um, we're actually running an article today on their site about drugstores and what will they do now that they're not doing vaccinations and a lot of COVID tests and stuff because the mm-hmm. cases are dropping here in the U.S. Well, the same day that we're running this story, there's you know news about a test in Japan by researchers in Japan that show that a subvariant of Omicron. Um, may spread more. It may actually be, you know, more deadly than oh my um, than, than than Omicron. So, you know, every single we, you know, we had Delta. We thought we were kind of over that, and then Omicron came. So every time we think that we have this solved, something else is, has come up, and you know, it's it's convenient for people to uh, you know blame. Um, public health officials, but the reality is most of them have told us that that this sort of thing is going to happen until we reach, um, you know, herd uh, immunity. And yeah. frankly, we'll never do that because we don't have enough people either getting vaccinated uh, to build up uh, resistance to it or, you know, being in, infected to do it to, uh, right. to get to that level. So variants are going to continue to happen. You know, we yeah. just... You know, if, if, if you're religious, you pray that, that that won't happen. And if you're not religious, I'm not sure what you do. You just hope for a better day, I guess. But, you know, Indeed. I mean, one of the things that it seems to have done is really imp- change the balance of power between the staff and the, and the management. My um, youngest son uh, is... Uh, um, taking a gap year between uh, high school and college and so he's working in retail and um the local one of the local employers we're in san diego is the san diego zoo san diego wild animal park they're offering a 1200 dollars signing on bonus if you yeah. sign up for 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 retail that's just incredible and that's gotta have a whole bunch of impacts i i i mean i we see it at williot with uh, the kind of push to automation is is that something that you're seeing too oh yeah i mean it you know i you know i think i said earlier you know frontline associates save save their bacon you know it's, it's as simple as 
simple as that. And the reality is, is that um, between people being infected with COVID or having dropped out of the the workforce because schedules didn't permit them to provide childcare for their their kids or or you know just over fear about you know becoming ill themselves or or frankly you know working in retail has become uh, you know kind of a, a a dangerous occupation in in some cases you have a lot of people who um, you know are, are picking on the wrong people to try to make a point these days. Um, and, um, you know, uh, verbal abuse is, is, is not unusual and, uh, even, you know, physical abuses has, uh, taken place where, um, you know, people have gotten really hurt. So, um, so I, I think, you know, it, it, it's hard to turn the lights on in a store when you don't have anybody to turn the lights on. Right. And, um, and, I, and, you know that they, they frontline workers really are the, the the single biggest asset that any retail organization has, and you know the the, the fact of, fact of the matter is is that you know a really good associate in a store can can cement customer relationships more than any loyalty program can any sale can. Um, you know, I have, uh, have, you know, lots of, lots of stories, uh, uh, like that. And, um, and you know, it's, uh, I, I, the good news, I guess, is that I think a lot of retailers, um, have had the light bulb go off, uh, uh, investments in training have gone, uh, way up, at least among, you know, major retailers, Mm -hmm. um, an understanding about uh, flexible scheduling has also uh, improved because, you know, uh, haphazard scheduling, particularly for part-time employees, has always been a problem and they've just expected lots of turnover. And and I think, you know, some retailers, uh, Walmart is one, has gone where more of their workers, a percentage of the workers are now full-timers than part-timers. And, you know, that builds continuity. Um, you have experience. You have people who are really invested because if you're working full time in a position, the chances are you've decided that you're that this is your occupation. This is not just the job. Right. And 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 things like career advancement and, and that are, are are on your mind. And if you've got a company interacting with you that way, you're going to put that much into it. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, as a technologist, I always feel a bit guilty about, oh, is this putting someone out of a job? But I, I'm actually now really optimistic that uh, what we're doing is taking care of the hygiene factors. It's like inventory. Do you actually know what's in stock? Do you really know where it is? And that's the kind of thing where auto ID technology that a whole number of us have been peddling can really help. But and and I do think that there is pressure to reduce the number of staff in stores, but not to eliminate them. I, I don't think I'm not seeing retailers uh, um, that want to get rid of all of the staff and just have robots. Maybe there are some, but like I don't think that's what Walmart are, uh, uh, want to do. I th what I see, you, know, you see the Costco's and going to Costco 
I look forward to it. And part of the reason is that you're in an environment where people have been working there for decades and they're good at their job, they're competent and they're engaged. And it's, it's, it's a human experience. I love going to our local CVS, the guy that, that, that serves there. He's featured in the, in the local, uh, um, uh, news uh, online bulletin boards because he's such a character and uh, people come to the local CVS because of him. I go to the local Einstein Bagel because they know my name and that's part of my Sunday morning uh, ritual. So if these, you know, if the automation can take care of the basics, so you're not annoyed because when you do go to buy that last COVID test, it's actually in stock, then I think that's that's where it is. And so... I'm actually well, I, pretty optimistic. Yeah, I I can tell you, uh, you know, so back in 2002, um, when we uh, shortly after we had, I, probably I guess about seven or eight months after we had started Retail Wire, I had this idea of writing a book, and it was about uh, corporate cultures in retail and how that uh -huh. that aligned with their performance. And I and I picked out three retailers that were all successful in their own rights, all had distinctly different niches. And my idea was I would go to local stores. I would apply for part-time jobs because I would figure out a way to work on part-time jobs and um, to see what made them them different. Now, I applied uh, for Trader Joe's. I won't mention the other two chains because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I, I, I went to Trader Joe's, told them I was a journalist, that I wasn't writing a hit piece, but this is what I wanted to do. They hired me. Um, the two other chains that I wanted to write about when I gave them the same spiel decided they didn't want to hire me because they, they, they didn't trust that, you know, you know <laughs> it wouldn't would, be a good experience. It yeah, wouldn't right. reflect well on them. Um, but I, I went to work for Trader Joe's. I was there about six months, I guess. And um, the very first day I worked, I, I started working a few days before Thanksgiving in the US, a grocery store a few days before Thanksgiving is like the busiest place you could be. And they put me on the register. Oh my goodness. And um, and I had a little bit of training, but not, not a lot. I mean, I learned how to work the register right before the shift opened, but that was kind of it. But the, um, the assistant manager, I don't even think they have them anymore. They were called first mates back then, came up to me and, he, and said to me, there's only one thing you need to know. This store is yours. Wow. I, from, so from that point on, I got on the register. I talked to people like they were my customers, my personal customers. And, you know, I talked to them about what, what they were making, how they were using it, how I use stuff, because I was also a customer at the store. You know, uh, recipes I tried that worked really well. And... And I developed the following to the point where my line was actually longer <laughs> than, I mean, not, not, not right away, but over a period of time, yeah. where my line would be longer than any other register at the store. And there was a, a, a full-timer who came in, who had come from ShopRite or one of the other, you know, kind of main, mainstream grocery chains, who was very disturbed by the length of the lines. Uh, and my register, because it was, you know, get them in, get it out, get them out, right? And um, so he was grousing, and he was always busting my my chops. And I said, I'm doing what's right for the customer. You, if you want to talk to Mike, who was first made at the time, you know, bring him over here. We'll talk about it. 
And he did. And Mike came over and he went to the people on the line and he asked them if they'd like to go to another line because other registers were open. And he had person <laughs> after person tell him, no, we like the way he bags. You know, he told us about this recipe. We liked it. So so he turned around to, you know, the new guy and said, leave him alone. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, that was, and I so I wound up leaving after after uh, I, I think it was about um, six months. And they wouldn't even let me quit. They they had me uh, take a leave of absence uh, with the idea that maybe I would go back. I, I never did go back. But I'm telling you, if I could have made a living there, I would have stayed on that register. I mean, I had so much fun. It was uh, it, it was a great. It is. It's a great story. It's a great. It was a great story. And I, I actually, it's another one of the, my regular places because of the people. Again, yeah. it's and the product. The product's actually really good too. So. But. So um, let's get this onto a technology track because this is supposedly a technology show. But uh, I think it's really important for us to kind of understand the customer, understand the market. So I'm not feeling too guilty about not talking about bits and bytes. But what what are you seeing technology wise that uh, from a retailer's perspective that's that's interesting? What uh, what what are the technologies that uh, are on retailers' minds at the moment? Uh, well, I guess the it's it's really kind of an all of the above <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, question. I mean, the good news for technology companies that investments in technology have never been higher. Um, you know, retailers really understand uh, that 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 technology can um, can help enable uh, performance on a high you know wide variety of levels. I mean. Obviously, <clears throat> artificial intelligence, machine learning is being tied to all sorts of functions at retail, and, <clears throat> and they are a key point of, uh, of interest. Um, the use of AI-powered uh, automation, you know, either apps or robotics, to free up humans to better serve customer, customers, I think is, uh, is really uh, is really important and is valued by retailers, and I, you know, and I you know, again, a knowledgeable and well-trained associate is is a retail store's greatest greatest strength, um, mm -hmm. and the same potential applies to those that are operating online uh, as well. Um, you know, if you know, I, I I've been, um, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, I've got a new border collie puppy who's nine weeks old, mm -hmm. and um, so of course we uh, we've had. <clears throat> you know, full truckloads uh, pulling up in front of our house with uh, uh, deliveries from uh, from Chewy. And, um, and the recommendations that I've had in chats with their associates online, or maybe it's just AI, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's associates has been great. Mm -hmm. When I've had to return things, I've gotten to the point with Chewy, and this talks about the combination of, of technology and the human aspect. I've gotten to the point with, with Chewy where I feel guilty when I return something because they are so accommodating that I, I, I almost feel like, you know, even though, you know, like I, I saw something and I, and I, I had the size wrong and I, I get back to them and say, well, it's a size wrong. I'd like to return it. And they tell me, you know, give it to a, a local shelter. We'll credit you for it. It's like, you know, I made the mistake. Why, <laughs> why, why are you having to do this? So, um, so I, you know, I, I think that's um, that that's really key. And they, you know, they know 
they know their customer from their data, right? They know what, what I'm buying. They know my dog's name. My dog's name comes into every single conversation that I have with them. So, um, so you know, I, cool. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Chewy fan. What about Omnichannel? Because uh, I, I was struck by the fact that the name isn't seem, doesn't seem to be used as much, but it seems like it's even more critical. It's like fundamental to, maybe it's just so fundamental that people are, are not talking about it because, uh, or not using the name because it's just like the, the route to survival. Um, should, should I be using a different word than Omnichannel? Is it still a thing? Uh, it is still a thing, and I and in many ways it's become the default term. Um, you know, some people use uh, unified commerce, or mm -hmm. you know, to me it's just retail. Um, you know, in reality, what what retailers have done, and a lot of it, a lot of it is due to um, inventory management and accounting issues. The channels were separated um, because they didn't know how to properly account for the sale. Um, mm -hmm. which would give somebody credit, you know, <laughs> within the uh, organization. And the inventory, because they were, they were operated separately, particularly with legacy systems, which, you know, I think is being addressed as more stuff goes to the cloud, but um, would, um, would necessitate having two separate inventories. But what the reality is, is with hybrid shoppers, I mean, we know that consumers who shop from a retailer, who shop both online and in-store, spend more than those that just shop in-store or online, right? So, yes. And customers have, uh, you know, there's this convenience factor. You know, we've all gotten, we've all gotten uh, spoiled. You know, we want to be able to shop where, when, and how how we'd like, uh, whether that's on a phone or a desktop or a laptop or, or walking into a store or, or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and retailers have had to accommodate and they've, and they've discovered that there's, you know, there's value in that, in their ability to compete with the likes of Amazon, for example, um, because pricing, pricing discrepancies and things like they had with, you know, with, trying to keep with Amazon's dynamic pricing are able to be smoothed out and, you know, and transparent transparency largely driven by Amazon, but also, you know, the DoorDashes and Uber Eats of the world is mm -hmm. that as a consumer, I want to know where the product, well, first I want to know if the product actually exists because nothing mm -hmm. takes customers off more than you place an order and you, and it says there's inventory and then you, you know, an hour later you get a message that, you know, that the inventory doesn't exist. Right. So, yeah. um, or you're told what so reconciling those. Yeah. Reconciling those things is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently. I asked Mint Mobile's legal team. If big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation, they said, yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's key, isn't it? So I've got a few things that I... Um, I'm kind of a hype or... or uh, hype or is it real? Um, and... At NRF, I thought it was really interesting listening to the CEOs of the various retailers talk. And I was shocked when the the CEO of Ralph Lauren started talking about the metaverse. And it, it was not just like, oh, yeah, uh, some some very superficial comment. He actually seemed to have spent some serious time looking at it. Do you what's your view on the metaverse? Is it just hype or is 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 it uh, really relevant is that something that that your readers need to know about do you think well we've written about it so i <laughs> i hope so we're actually running a story today on uh on uh uh, uh timberland's program that that uh, that they're running on it so um so i guess first thing we need to do is we need to start by defining what the metaverse is right um right it's a term kind of like big data was a few years ago where it meant something completely different based on who you were speaking to. Now, as I understand it, and uh, again, I'm not a technologist. I'm just a, a lowly journalist. As I understand it, popular theories of the metaverse say it can be a product or a service. It can be a place or um, it can represent a point in time, which actually in my mind is the scariest thing. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. So, um, as a product or service, in some ways, it's off to a good start um, because it's essentially being built on the same platform that, that game developers have, have built, right? Mm -hmm. So the technology mm -hmm. is there. Whether the, the bandwidth um, is, is there to, to scale, I'm not sure. But, um, again, that's, that, that's outside my, my, my pay grade. Um, you know, all that's pretty sophisticated work. Um, and we know in short bursts that 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 there has been success in monetizing it, right? <clears throat> you know, uh, with with fine art or you know collectible sneakers or something. You know, Nike mm -hmm. and Timberland, as I I mentioned. Um, excuse the pun; those two are taking steps, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and you know and and they have a strong brand, and they and they already have an affinity with a group of, of customers. So, so that's mm -hmm. easy, you know, whether that's going to work for, um, you know, uh, uh, Kellogg cereal or something like that. I'm, I'm less certain about that, mm -hmm. but also on the plus side, um, if I remember correctly, this, this past holiday season, I think Oculus headsets <coughs> actually outsold um, at least one or two of the game game consoles. Right. So right. So people are putting putting these things on their on their 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 heads. So um, so you know That's if, you're, a good point. if you're if you're Banksy and you got you you got a piece of art or you're you got Nike with a limited edition sneaker, makes great. 
probably makes a lot of sense if you're, uh, you know, selling pickles, maybe not so much. Um, right. You know. So, yeah, it seems like the metaverse is relevant in three ways to retailers. And you just pointed out one which is like, obviously, I hadn't thought about. First one is you can sell a bunch of metaverse kit, headsets, computers, all that sort of thing. The second one is products. I, I, I'm, I'm Ralph Lauren. I can start selling Ralph Lauren clothes for your avatar. And then the third one is just a great, maybe a great way of of creating another user interface to sell the physical products right. that well, they're and, all and, you know, used the, to. You know, the metaverse is a place, if you will, already exists, right? It's in games like Fortnite. Second Life um, yeah. is actually still around. Um, and they were one of the first movers, although, you know, obviously they, they have not, to this point, lived up to the early hype um, that came with it. Um, the last aspect about it being a, 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 a point in time um, is really kind of the way I think uh, Meta, formerly known as Facebook, is is looking at it. And frankly, I find that kind of scary. Um, I know yeah. Mark Zuckerberg is quite keen on his avatar, um, and he changed the name of his company, obviously, because he thinks we'll all be creating our own avatars and you know socializing and conducting business and going about our lives in these virtual worlds. But um, but I'm not sure. I don't see see this happening in any great degree, at least with current hardware required to fully actualize the experience. Um, and while I see applications for people to use this in both their the personal and professional lives, um, I think something you know is bound to get lost if you know as a society we withdraw more from our physical reality. Right? You know. You know, advocates are talking about the wonders of the metaverse to, you know, um, to, that are that are to come, you know, but, you know, I would add a caution to that. You know, a lot of this sounds, at least to my ears, like the early evangelists of the Internet and social media. You know, the fact is that there is a lot of dark in the world and it seems to gain strength in the virtual world. Um, and I'd hate for the metaverse, frankly, to be the vehicle of amplifying the worst aspects of social media. You know, in the years. Yeah. Yeah, there was actually a, um, uh, I can't remember which group it was. I think it was the Foo Fighters. They were having a, uh, a concert in the metaverse. And I've got my Oculus headset that I bought because I felt like I need to understand this stuff. But um, I, I was so disappointed that Google Earth wasn't available um, yet that I kind of put it down. But I thought, oh, I'll dust it off, charge up the headset, go to this concert. And so I went online and started to get ready. And I looked at the reviews and they were terrible. It was like, and it wasn't about pixelation or navigating. the. It was like, I'm surrounded by these really obnoxious people who are being really nasty to me. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, I felt like I was being bullied. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to a place like that. That's so, so I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Yeah, I, you know, I put the headset away. I, I, I myself would, would say that we have learned, um, you know, over the past 20 plus years that, that lots of good ideas can be corrupted. And, um, you know, to my way of thinking, we should figure out how to limit the corruption before we get we get into these things. But 
That's just- yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, my understanding is that there's some open source uh, approaches to this that are hoping to make sure this doesn't get hijacked by uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So I'm, I'm really hoping that's <laughs> the way it goes. But we'll see. Um, you know, what, what, what is on retailers' minds? And maybe we've already covered this, but what, what, what are the technology topics that, uh, that you, or, or maybe the business drivers that get you to a technology topic, maybe that's a better way of asking the question, well, that are on people's minds. What are you trying to, what are the questions that you're trying to answer uh, because you feel like there's either, they people want to know or they need to know? Right, well, I mean, you know, as I said before, I guess it might be a bit controversial for your audience, but I don't think that te- te- technology is, is fundamentally changing anything there that retailers do. And I, um, you know, it's just helping them to do what they've always done well, you know, when they did it well in the past, um, just do it in a, in a different, maybe more effective way, but, but it's still, you know, dealing with the same processes, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of tech out there. I mean, uh, I've been um, really interested uh, in my conversations connected to, to NRF and I've had now about 60, appointments uh, connected to that show. Um, but I've been excited about the number of companies that are in low and no code programming um, mm-hmm. because I think it will free retailers to concentrate on what they do well and best. And that generally speaking is not development. Um, you know, tech companies are usually the ones that are, are, are offering the, um, the opportunities and the, and the perks that attract it, attract the best talent. Now that's not universally yeah. true, but because there's lots of very talented people within within retail, but um, you know by by and large, you know that's that's really not their strength, both in terms of of, of numbers or or overall talent. Um, I, I think there's also um, uh, increased. Uh, Emphasis. We talked a little bit before about what I call transparency tech, which can include um, like blockchain, um, and that interests mm-hmm. me because you know demand is greater than ever before for for retailers and their various stakeholders to know what products are available and and where they are and and you know. All- so you're you're thinking about that in terms of where did this product come from? Did this piece of jewelry come from some? Uh, you know, uh, exploited slave labor, or, or, or um, oh, oh, what's the name yeah, of the well, chicken those, that I'm those, eating? Those, those types of, of issues are increasingly important. But even even beyond yeah. that, if you're talking about non-controversial uh, products, you know, we've le- if we learn nothing else from this COVID experience, is that the supply chain starts at the manufacturing plant, which is often in China. It gets on a boat and it comes across, and it gets stuck in it at the, at the port at LA. You know, so. Um, and, and the supply chain issue is of critical importance. Um, you know, if, if there's one thing, I guess, that, that retailers are really kind of focused on now, it, it, it's that. It's the su- supply chain. And, and I always have kind of like a Monty Python flashback when I'm, when I'm asked about the uh, supply chain. Because to me, I, I, always, I always think back to no one expects the Spanish Inquisition sketch, you know. Where modern day people relaxing in their homes are accosted by you know Spanish clergy from the 1400s, you know. So uh, so anyway, to try to I love that. <laughs> you know, to try to make my point a, a little bit clearer for those who you know 
our, our Python fans. You know, we've heard over and over again since the outset of the pandemic that no one saw it coming, right? And I don't know if that's true, particularly of large retailers with operations in China. I would argue that, in fact, they did see it, it, it coming. You know, maybe they didn't see it with enough time, but, you know, it, 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 was, it was coming. I mean, I my work, my wife works uh, in uh, in public health, and and she was going on about COVID nineteen um, at least I think in December of of two thousand nineteen. So um, so certainly some people um, uh, certainly knew about it. Um, but I mm-hmm. think you know one of the things that really pointed out is the really um, the limitations of just in time delivery methods. And they've been laid bare over the past two years. And, you know, now retailers and suppliers are trying to wrap their heads around uh, how much just-in-case inventory or capacity that they need to have access to if they want to deal with, you know, the future curveballs that are thrown um, Interesting. in their direction. You know. Just-in-case inventory. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a good yeah, one. We, we ran a discussion on the site this week, uh, and actually a headline, it was a piece I wrote, which was, what isn't wrong with the supply chain? And because mm-hmm. everywhere you look, there are challenges. Factory production interrupted, port congestion, shortages of containers, too few truck drivers, and fleets that need updating. So large truckload companies are increasing CapEx, but whether the, the vehicles can be delivered on time and whether the parts are there, I mean, um, the um, um, microchip uh, issue affects Everything vehicular uh, in the world, um, you know, truck driver shortage goes back way before the pandemic. I mean, American Trucking Association say that we're like 80,000 drivers short now. Well, I can tell you back in early, you know, 15 years ago, I was talking to execs from Costco and Safeway on the West Coast. were telling me that they were having trouble then getting on-time shipments from CPG companies because truckers were headed to the Dakotas because we had a shale oil boom there and they were getting paid more money to, 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 to go run, uh, um, to run, run loads there. So, you know, um, pilot programs are being run now to maybe lower the age of drivers. You have to be 21 to, to be a long haul trucker. Um, mm-hmm. Automated trucking firms keep telling up test help is on the way. Um, frankly, I kind of think that fully automated transportation anyway, um, you know, being used for big rigs is a while away for uh, highways. Port congestion reigns, remains an issue. I guess the good news on that front is that um, demand should be about what it was last year. So we won't see a huge spike from where we were uh, last year. But, you know, retailers and brands have had to, to adapt. There's clearly a need for improved forecasting, AI power systems. Um, I guess they're kind of like the blanket answer for that. And a lot of companies are making investments. Um, you know, chains like Canadian Tire have moved up their ordering uh, earlier, and they're uh, chartering cargo ships to make sure that they can get goods brought to market. Um, there's been a lot of work around um, the limitations of the uh, current system to keep um, you know goods flowing on a timely basis, um, and they're doing it to reduce sur- you know s- charges for for surges and shipping, and to keep s- shelves stocked in stores and warehouses because you know uh, consumers when they go to a store and they're looking for a product and they can't find it don't tend to keep returning to stores if you know the experience stays the same. Yeah. 
Very good. So, George, perhaps you can tell us a bit about your career. You have a really interesting job. You're in the catbird seat looking at the industry. Um, you seem to have a lot of, uh, you control a lot of your own destiny. How, how did you get this job? Uh, I knew the right people. <laughs> um, and then had a long association with them uh, prior to this job. Um, I've been uh, editor-in-chief of Retail Wire since the site launched in February 2002. And uh, the title of associate publisher was uh, added added later as I took on, you know, more responsibilities on the, on the business side of things. Um, I've really been, um, I've been in retail all my life. My father started as a clerk at A&P grocery stores here and, and worked his way up. Um, I, uh, um, you know, back in the, uh, the early days where they used to uh, have blue laws and they close even grocery stores on Sundays here in, in New Jersey, my father would have, um, myself and my uh, kid sister and brother, um, in his stores on Sundays, helping to face off shelves and build displays and, and, and that sort of thing. So he would be prepared for, um, Monday when the, when the store opened. So, uh, back then, I swore that I'd never have anything to do with retailing because I couldn't understand why my Sundays were being spent that way, uh, particularly since they didn't involve any compensation whatsoever, except maybe, a, you know, a stop at the ice cream store on the way home. Um, um, and, uh, you know, when I was in uh, high school and college, uh, you know, I went, went to work at a, at a, uh, a grocery uh, chain. Um, became a manager of a, a drive-through convenience store of all things, uh, which was very rare back then, um, for a number of years. And then went into advertising, and lo and behold, my clients were seventy-five percent retailers. Um, so, um, um, you know, I it just kind of progressed from there. I, I wound up working for a trade publishing company. Um, really in the marketing communications field. I was doing a lot of uh, video stuff, basically producing content for uh, consumer brand companies to market to retailers as to why they were better partners for them than, than say, other companies. They're you know, basically category management reviews. And from there, they just kept promoting me into different uh, places to the point where they... Um, we recall there was a meeting, there was a change taking place at the company, new ownership was coming in, and there was a meeting discussed where I was in it where the discussion was, well, where would George fit best? And it was uh, interesting that... You were present at the meeting or... Uh, yes, I was actually no, in the meeting, <laughs> and it was one of the key, the key points. I, I guess, you know, they wanted to let me have some input on what my fate would be. Nice. Um, and, uh, and the editor in chief at, at, uh, the publication at one of the publications at the time said, you know, he, he's, he does, he, he's, he, when he goes on sales calls, he helps the sales guy sell. He's, he does the job really well on the marketing side, but I really think he belongs in editorial. And, um, you know, to which the publisher responded, well, you know, how are we going to make money if he does that? And um, so, um, so I didn't go into editorial, but they started giving me kind of said uh, side editorial projects 
um, to because I you know expressed an interest in it. And um, around 1997, I was still working for the same company, and uh, they you know they threatened to make me the vice president of sales and marketing, and I quit. Um, and the reason I quit was um, I said to the to the powers that be, there's this new thing called the internet. And if we don't get into it, um, you know, I think that we're going to be at a competitive disadvantage in a really short period of time, uh, which they laughed at me. Um, basically, they said, you know, what, what was I talking about? You know, it was in the early days, um, you know, of dial up and all. And um, so, so, yeah, I went out on my own and, um, and began working with Internet accounts, mostly consumer brand companies who hired me to do the same types of things that I was doing um, in print and in video, but to do it on the web with, uh -huh. you know, all its, uh, its limitations in particular back then with, with bandwidth and all. What year and, would that, uh, that have been in? That would have been like 1998, between 1998 and 2000. And then in 2000, um, some people that I worked at with the company that I had left actually became a client of mine. They had started a new business and um, and asked me, you know, as a sideline, if I'd like to write some columns. And the columns were really well received. And uh, one was called Street Beat. One was called Marketing Beat. And... Um, and uh, and I enjoyed it immensely. It was the the best part of my 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 job at the at the time, and um, and unfortunately September 11th happened, and um, you know the uh, the angel investor we had uh, turned into a devil, and you know we we didn't have funds anymore, and we uh, we found ourselves um, you know trying to figure out what what came next, and the you know, the people that I worked with there came up with the idea to found Retail Wire. And, um, you know, we've been stuck at the hip uh, ever since. So what what makes a good story? What when you were writing, I guess you, you see it as a writer and as an editor. Um, but what gave you the most satisfaction in terms of writing? Because you, you really felt you'd produce something good. Um, well, number one, it was, I, I was pretty sure after having written it, that it was useful. Um, and not, not useful in terms of do A, B, C, and D. It was useful in terms of maybe having the reader, um, address their own thinking or their own thought processes on, on a given subject and, and maybe look at it in a different light. Mm. Um, a, a lot of, a lot of what, what I do, um, is, is focused on getting retailers to, to remember, you know, everybody, you know, it kills me when, uh, you know, uh, invest, uh, uh investors are talking about, uh, shareholder value. Um, that just drives me insane. Uh, because that's that's shorthand for you know put more money in their pockets and you know somebody else gets screwed along the way right mm -hmm. so so I'm a big believer in stakeholders and I think that everybody has to win at every step of the way mm -hmm. I've been a big fan of Costco for many years um, 
you know, I, I think that for, for many years, retailer CEOs would get up at, at uh, trade conferences and talk about their most important assets being the frontline workers. I don't think most of them really believe that in their, their heart because the frontline workers were always the most disposable, right? Yeah. Um, but I think in the past couple of years, some of that has, has really changed because, frankly, those people saved their bacon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, and you know, I just I, I'm really the 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 human element, and and uh, even when it comes to technology, you know, technology to me is a tool. It, it's 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 not it's not the the end, right? So, um, and in fact, the applications of technology today are almost exclusively dealing with problems that retailers have been addressing since day one right they're just they're just uh addressing them uh you know with a with a different tool to 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 reach you know an an, an optimum uh optimum results so so you know um you know self checkouts when they came out again that was you know that was really shorthand for for put some people out of work but now i think when when retailers talk about automation they're talking about redeployment of their human assets to better serve customers, um, and um, you know, I think I think that's that's you know, ultimately every business is built on the humans within that business, and and the relationships that they develop with their partners, um, you know, whether that's a, a customer or, or or a vendor, and um, and I and I don't I don't think that that any of those elements are uh, are should be easily dismissed. Very good. Very good. Well, um, I have to, uh, and I want to ask you our traditional uh, questions about music. So um, do you have three songs in mind that have some meaning to you personally? Yeah, well, I'm a music freak. So that, that um, when, when I was told that this was the question I was going to be asked, um, it was really difficult because the three questions could change. So so I thought about this question in terms of my life and moments in my life. I'm so, so glad that is yeah. exactly how it's intended. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So, so my three songs, my first song is All My Loving uh, by the Beatles. Oh, yeah. It was the first song played by the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. I should oh. tell you, I was five years old at the time. I lived in a two-family home in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is, you know, an urban urban area, two-family home. My cousins lived upstairs, and we lived downstairs, like brownstone kind of uh, building. Uh, night of the show, um, all the kids went upstairs, and all the adults went downstairs. And um, uh, the show came on, and my life changed. I mean, literally changed. You know, I went from Chubby Checkers and the Twist to the Beatles. I mean, it was, it, it was, I felt it like in every cell of my body. It was just transformative. And um, so after the show was over, well, a couple things. That night, my, uh, my cousins were a bit older than me. One of them had a crush on George. Another had a crush on Paul. Now, I told my cousin, my cousin's, 
said to me, well, you know, who do I, who did I think was the cutest? Now, my name is George. So I picked George, not really having any real opinion on it. And, and my cousin, who is, I think she was 13 at the time, picked me up and carried me into their bathroom, threatening to flush me down the, 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 the toilet or loo, as you would say. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so again, very ingrained in my, in, in my brain. Oh, and, uh, great choice. I have to give a plug. I was just listening. Rolling Stone have the, the 500 best albums ever um, list, which they curate. And they've just started a podcast only on Amazon Music. It's a nightmare to find, but when you find it, there's gold there. And one of the episodes is about the making of Let It Be. And they have Ringo and Paul McCartney and uh, George Martin's uh, son Giles on it. And uh, it, it is just absolutely fascinating. So uh, I, I and I watched that. I watched every second of the of the documentary. Oh, that was and, so good. Uh, it was and magic. It, and, and also, I mean, I, I, I could have easily included any element of that yes. um, in, in my list as well, because like many people, I, you know, lived with this, you know, the, the Beatles breaking up was, was decimating to me. You know, I mean, um, you know, I, I, I can tell you that I cried more tears, you know, when, when John Lennon died and when George Harrison died, than oh. when, you know, people I've actually know. So, <laughs> well, you did know them. Uh, they were part of your life on a regular exactly. basis. Yeah. And it's, um, so yeah, I mean that, and that first show, like I said, just changed everything. I mean, the next day, my mother, uh, who loved music and loved dancing, we always had music on in our home. Um, I grabbed myself, my sister who was four, my brother who was two. We got on a bus in Jersey City and we went to Journal Square, which is, you know, like the high street there, uh, to a record shop, the biggest record shop in the city. And we bought every Beatle record, 45s and the, and the LP. We got all kinds of memorabilia. We brought it home. And I remember we came home and we were dancing and we were singing and we were doing that, you know, the Beatles shake with our heads. And... Um, and just, just you know, a, a, a great memory that just you know makes me emotional even even yeah. talking about. It, so oh, it's um, iconic. So anyway. I, I wish I could have been there to to, to see <laughs> see see that. So okay, that was a great okay, so number that's one. Number, number one. This you <laughs> getting through this song list may be the length of the entire interview. <laughs> um, so um, so number two uh, is Abraham Martin and John by Dion Demucci. And my mother was a big, big admirer of Abraham Lincoln, uh, the Kennedy brothers, and Reverend King. And I think I had just turned 10 um, when Reverend King uh, was murdered. And I remember walking into the room, and my mom was watching television, probably Walter Cronkite, because everybody in, the Amer in America watched Walter Cronkite. And, um, and she was crying. And I asked her why, and she told me about this great man who was trying to, you know, just bring some fairness and, and justice to the world and, and help his people who hadn't been treated very well um, in our country, and that he was, he was worthy of, um, of admiration. And that, um, and I should remember, even though I didn't really know who he was at that point in time in my life, um, that his life had had meaning, and that um, that it was it was important, 
And um, so Gosh. when um, so when Dion, um, you know, of Runaround Sioux fame uh, released this record, which was distinctly different than his his fifty stuff, it yeah. um, it really made uh, an impression on on me. Um, so, wow. and then the third song. Um, is Happy Together, which was a hit by the tur- uh, the Turtles back in the sixties. Oh yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't like a super big fan of the record at the time, but when our first child that we my wife and I have four children when, I, when our first child came along, I found myself singing it to him when I walked around the room with him in my arms. And there's oh. a line that says, "I can't. I'm not going to sing it. I'll 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 save you that." Uh, I can't see see me loving nobody but you for all my life. When you're with me, baby, the skies will be blue for all my life. And um, and I did that with all four children. So um, so uh, for that reason, that that song has um, you know a, a, a lot of meaning for me. And uh, so that, that that was awesome. Uh, thank you, George. That or Fab, I should say. That was Fab. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, George. Uh, um, I hope you'll uh, come on again in the future and uh, we'll get to uh, uh, touch base on, on, on the latest trends in, in retail. Because I think, you know, as technologists, we really need to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the customer. And obviously, the, the retailer is one of the biggest customers out there. My pleasure. Anytime. And that's the end of our episode for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation with, uh, with George Anderson. Uh, I just love his Beatles story. <laughs> that was really cool. Um, if you have been, thanks for listening. Please do uh, do us the favor of uh, rating us, reviewing us, uh, sharing what we do with your friends. And uh, until next time, please be safe. 